Um, so if you weren't here uh, with us last week for Easter, uh, one of the main things we were trying to do was just why don't you talk about the resurrection, because it's, it's Easter, right? And that's what you do. Um, also, that's because where we were in the book of Ephesians took us right to this cool resurrection moment. But one of the things we talked about was just how much better we need to see Jesus in the gospel uh, than the rest of what the world offers. Like, he's just better, right? It's not that everything out there in the world is terrible and you just need to avoid it. It's just that Jesus is even better than the best things the world can offer. And so one of the illustrations that we brought up was the difference between LaCroix and a Mexicoke, okay? Uh, and if you weren't here for that, I mean, that's just, what is happening? <laughs> okay, it's just obvious, right? So like a LaCroix is a kind of somewhat flavorless scented water um, that just masquerades as something tasty. And so uh, it's not a Mexicoke. And so it's so, so funny. I was like, no, you need to choose the Mexicoke. And listen, it was all meant to be a metaphor for Jesus. Like Jesus is better, but it did not stop me from getting multiple pictures like this one. Yeah. Like, all week, people are like, as soon as they found a Mexico, oh, I'm going to send this, look what I'm doing, I'm buying a Mexico. And I want to be like, wait, but it was about Jesus. Like, show me a picture of you worshiping, right? Like, show, show me a picture of you, like, I, I don't know, like, eating a Bible or something. What? Yeah. I meant to say reading, reading your Bible. That's a weird start. So you can take that down. And so I kept getting that kind of stuff. It was... It was, uh, don't do that. And so Jesus is better than anything the world has to offer, right? Like, and that has to be kind of at the, at the base level, this foundational reality for the church, that if you're here and you're a Christian, Jesus is better, right? Like, amen, right? Jesus is better than, than anything the world can, can offer or throw away. It doesn't always seem that way. We get confused at times. I get that. Um, but man, at the end of the day, he is better, okay? Uh, if you're here and you're not a Christian, man, I want to sell you on that reality. Like, Jesus is better than these things. Listen, and... That doesn't translate to your life will be easier. I'm just telling you he's better, okay? Uh, and, and that's a very important fact. It has to be foundational to kind of what we look at today. Um, my, my hope is, is that by the end, I'm going to give it to you right now. My hope is at the end, you and I as the church together corporately would feel motivated to do good works. We'd be motivated to love our city. We'd be motivated to care for your neighbor, like literally, which means you have to know your neighbor. Like you might have to knock on a door. You might have to say hi when you're pulling your trash cans out, right? Uh, that you would serve and care for your coworkers, that you would love your classmates, right? In such a way where service and good work kind of comes up underneath it. That's, that's my hope at the end of this. But there are two main foundational absolute realities that we have to know if that is all to work out really well. Otherwise, the whole thing will be off, and I guarantee it. Okay? And so we're going to go back to Ephesians verse 8, which we, we covered a little bit last week, but I want to start us there. We'll do 8, we'll do 9, which are kind of the front end, and then, and then verse 10 is really kind of that linchpin moment where we turn and kind of move the church and hopefully be formed by this desire to go and serve our city. So let's start Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. Let's get going. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God. Now, we talked about this last week. Now, God has so given and graced this world with a gift, okay? And we said last week that it is that you are saved, that you are raised, and that you are graced, right? That continuously, God has not just saved you and raised you in a moment and then just cut it off like, hey, you were that. It's this grace is continual and ongoing, and you are His. Every morning, waking up with new mercy, 
new grace with which to constantly move into that which God has called us. It's the gospel, right? So that is the gift of God, is Jesus coming down to this world, living the life we couldn't live, dying the death we deserve to die, and as we celebrated last Sunday, raising to give us and grant us new life, this beautiful gift of God. And I want you guys to see it, if you would, in the context of like the father-son, father-daughter relationship. Any parent, any child, right? So I have, uh, you know, like you guys know this, Finley, who's three and a half, James, who's, you know, uh, nine months or something. And um, I think he's like down there. And so, um, man, when, uh, we go to Target. You, parent, are there any parents in here? There's not that many. <laughs> this is the 11. So, um, but when parents take their kids to Target, uh, something happens that we call getting targeted, right? Which means, and this happens to my wife Verity too, where you show up not wanting to buy anything, but then you leave with $300 worth of stuff, okay? Uh, and so when I take my son Finley, I say, hey, buddy, and I kneel down, I say, listen up, man. We're not getting anything today, okay? Like, I know you're going to want toys, but we just can't do it. We're not going to buy toys. You already got enough, okay? And then what happens when we reach aisle two, right? <laughs> Daddy, but I want it. I'm like, okay, okay, you can have it, right? <laughs> like, it's all yours. Like, here, here's my wallet, whatever you want, you know? But it's because, like, I can't, I'm so welled up and affected. And you're, a lot of your parents are like, oh, you're a terrible parent, right? Uh, <laughs> which maybe that's true, right? But I'm like, no, no, I love this kid so much. I'm like, dude, here, have the house, right? Have it all. Like, this is, this is yours. Like, the limited resources your mom and I have, we bequeath to you. Because I love this kid so much, I cannot help myself. And listen, this is the context because we've already studied in the book of Ephesians that the beautiful reality of what happens in Christianity, it's not just that you abide by a religion now, it's you've been adopted into the family of God. The Bible says you are a son, you are a daughter of God. So now you're part of his crew, like you're part of his family. And so he sees you as a son, as a daughter. So he's like, no, I want to bless you with this gift, saved, raised, and continuously graced so that we walk in what we'll talk about today. So we have to understand that this gift has been given, and that's absolutely necessary. Now, verse 9, okay, now, up to this point, Paul has already talked about this grace idea, this salvation idea. It's, it's I did this, you didn't do this, right? I chose you, I elected you, I predestined you, I foreknew, like, all of this beautiful imagery and language. And then in verse 9, remember the first time I read it, like, it popped out to me as finally, like, oh, that's what you mean. Like, it just was concrete enough for me to wrap my mind around. And so uh, first nine, let's put that up there. So this is a gift of God, ready? Not a result of works so that no one may boast, okay? So, so this gift, in other words, was not achieved because back over here, you did enough stuff where then God said, yeah, now you get the gift, okay? So, so, so saved, raised, and graced, this has nothing to do with what you bring to the table, this is not your achievements. This is not your spiritual checklist. This isn't because you've read through the Bible. It's not any of that. It's because it is a gift from your Father above who created you. Now, now this is imperative, right? That again, if, if we want to be a people who go and serve and care for the world, our city, our neighbors, our friends, our family, like, well, the gospel has to be the first thing that we found ourselves on nonstop. We always return to in the midst of freak out, in the midst of anxiety, in the midst of the I don't want to. We go back to the gospel and says, no, 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 this, I didn't achieve any of this of my own. This is the gift of God. And because it's the gift of God, I did not earn this. I'm not going to be able to continually give away what I have not received freely. And so we come back to the gospel continuously, okay? Um, 
Paul talks about this uh, in 2 Corinthians, which uh, if, you, if you want to turn there, 2 Corinthians 11, so you can follow along. I want to share one more thing before we read it. But Paul, I think, would push heavily against the cultural statements of our day, which are, well, I'm a pretty good person. Well, well, I tend to try and treat people well. Now, I used to drive Uber. I don't know if you guys, you all know what Uber is and stuff. And so I was an Uber driver for about a year and a half. Verity was in school, and so I, didn't, I was trying to keep us out of debt. So I was like, yeah, I'll do the kind of like the, usually it was like the 9 to 3 a.m. shift uh, a few nights a week just to be able to make money for, for, for her school. And so um, what's amazing about Uber is you get like 15 to 20 minutes, sometimes a bit shorter, with someone in your car, and they can't leave, okay? Like, you're mine now. Right? Uh, and so usually the way the conversation would go would be like, oh, hey, so uh, do you drive uh, Uber for your career? I say, actually, no, I, I'm a pastor at a church in town. And so I was like, so when do you want to talk about Jesus? And so, um, you know, and it wouldn't always be that explicit. And just sometimes, you know, would, would be uh, more intense conversations. Other times it'd just be, you know, sports or whatever. The funniest thing was when, um, and I'm not calling anyone individually out, uh, but when I would pick up some inebriated folk from our church and they would come in and be like, hey, <laughs> hey, you know, <laughs> there was even one time one girl was like, I'm going to own it. And so she got in and she was not in her right mind. And she just starts yelling, this is my pastor. Like, I was like, dang, girl, like, I need to preach better. And so, um, <laughs> so. Uh, but man, in these conversations, we would get into a lot of times spiritual conversations. And I just ask some questions about life and hey, like what are you, what are you learning and all this kind of stuff. And a lot of times we would go to God and um, and they'd always say, you know, I'm just I'm just trying to be a good person. Um, I think I think God would yeah, like I think God would let me in. And it wouldn't even be asking questions. It's like they volunteer this information. No, I'm a pretty good person, and you get the whole deal, okay? And then that's just kind of the common nomenclature uh, of, of our culture today. Like, just be a good person. And, and let me say something real quick. Like, thank you. Like, if, if you're here, especially you're a non-Christian, you're like a pretty good person, thanks for being a pretty good person. Like, we need pretty good people in our world, right? We need people to treat each other well, regardless if you're a Christian or not. Like, you need to treat people well. Like, we need that across the board. Um, but listen, if, if the line well, I'm a pretty good person, is expected to be the golden key secret password to entering into right relationship with God, then we've strayed too far. And I think that's where we've gotten as a culture, right? Is, well, no, I'm pretty good, et cetera, et cetera. And so that becomes this golden key moment. And, and Paul would just say, no, 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 that's, no, it is not, right, not a result of works. It's not the good stuff. It's not that you're a good person. And this is foundational to being a Christian. It's foundational to the exercising of your faith in the world, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, um, Paul in 2 Corinthians 11, 18 through 31, if you want to read with us, says this, since many boast according to the flesh. Now, this is, again, Paul kind of being a bit facetious here to try and make a point, okay? Um, and if you are reading along, I am skipping kind of part of 21 because it's a little confusing just for what we're trying to do right now, but don't get upset. So verse 18, since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast. But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I am speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast of that. And here's his boast. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I'm talking like a madman. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. 
Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I'm not weak? Who is made to fall? And I am not indignant yet. Okay? And this is the turning point moment, right? Where he goes from this, this kind of fake, facetious brag to saying, no, no, no. If I must boast, okay, so if, I, if you really want me to do this, I will boast in the things that show my weakness. The God and the Father, the Lord Jesus, who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. So, so Paul's like saying, listen, this whole idea behind like it is not a result of works means you have nothing to boast in, right? And this is paramount to understanding of the gospel, that it's not you. The whole point is not glory of you, it's glory of him. It's what he's done. It's what he's accomplished. Because here's the reality. Hear me. If you are your own savior, okay, okay, if, if you act as your own savior, which I think we functionally do very often, then thank yourself, glorify yourself, obey your will, obey your desires, and live by your moral compass. Okay? And, and if you hear that, if you just pay attention to that line, does that, is that not our culture today? Is that not kind of the general kind of thought of how you're supposed to live your life? There's even a company who recently came out, like literally like a couple days ago, with a whole new marketing campaign, and the tagline is, just do you, right? Like, just do you. So in other words, forget about everybody else. You do you. Like, whatever you want, do it. Whatever you think, think it. Don't think about anybody else. Just do you, okay? Now, that type of idea, that's functional savior stuff. So thank yourself, glorify yourself, obey your own moral compass, obey your wills and desires. Now, if you're not the Savior, but He is, well, that changes things, Christian, right? That, that has to change things. If, you, if you're not the Savior, then He is the Savior. You believe in that. You put your faith in that. You put your hope in that. Well, then thank Him. Glorify Him, right? Obey His will, obey His desires, and obey His moral compass because He's the Savior and, and you're not, Right? And so this boast and this, this brag all have to be framed around that reality. What do we boast in? What do you believe that you're saved for? Now, I put together kind of a boast of our day, right? Because uh, there's not a ton of the stuff that Paul had to experience and walk through. Not a ton of that happening here in America, right? I'm not saying it's non-existent, but less shipwrecks, I think. Um, and so I wrote our own boast that I want to read for us, Okay that I think fits, and it's not my boast. This is what I just, I think generally for contemporary Christian culture in our world today. I too will boast. Five times I've read the Bible cover to cover. Three times I've gone on a short-term mission trip. Once I led someone to the Lord. Three times I attended church last month. A night and a day I slept outside to raise awareness about invisible children. Frequent small groups on frequent service projects. I grew up in this. My witness wear is on point. My favorite verse is tattooed in Hebrew on my shoulder. It's not John 3.16 because I'm not a cliche. It's Zechariah 9.9 because I'm authentic. <laughs> I work hard and provide for my family. My kids love Jesus. 
Listen, I've read Grudem's Systematic, Calvin's Institutes, Augustine's City of God, but also Bell's Love Wins and McLaren's A New Kind of Christian because I'm relevant like that. I know every word to how he loves and often raise my hands in worship. Okay? I serve communion once a month, but the other weeks I play guitar for my worship band, Jesus Freak United. I often pray in tongues, I seek the prophetic, and expectationally lay hands on the sick that they would be healed. I'm culturally engaged and care deeply about justice. I stand with the marginalized and house the poor in my own home. I just finished getting licensed to foster at-risk teens, and I'm working alongside organizations near and far to end child sex trafficking. People often seek my advice and my counsel, and I treat everyone with respect, and I seek to be a peacemaker for my community and my city. Now, that sounds fantastic, right? And if we're all living that life, that's amazing. Like, if we could write all that down, just like Paul was listening, like, everything he said, he wasn't making that stuff up. Like, he, all that stuff really did happen. He did suffer for the faith. He did remain faithful when he probably could have turned away, when many others did. So, so here, what I'm saying right there is not, hey, this, this whole little boast thing, these are bad things. No, do these things, but wait a second. If you're doing these things as to believe that those things are what make you a Christian, right? If those things are the things that curry favor with God, secure your eternity, allow the Holy Spirit to dwell inside you, give you a justified reality 24-7, 365, then you've missed it. Then we've missed the gospel because here's what here's what'll happen. And not only we miss the gospel, right? But it's not gonna sustain itself because here's what's gonna happen. The mission trips will stop being fun. Okay? The service projects will stop being engaging. The service you went to to meet that guy or meet that gal, right? They moved. Okay? The Bible, you're gonna open it up. Ah, I've read this before. Don't need to read it again. Prayer, ah, I've prayed about this before. Nothing's happening, okay? When it becomes about the action, if we're honest with ourselves, the actions sometimes aren't that great. And when it becomes, I will do these things so that then God loves me, it's not going to work because it's not always going to be fun. In fact, a lot of this world is just really difficult and hard because we live in a broken and sin-filled world. And so we have to return and say, no, 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 like all that stuff, that's what Paul's saying, is saying like, okay, I, I am all these things, I've done all these things, but I only boast in Jesus. I don't, I don't throw these things out there. Like what, we, what we've received here, hear me, is the clearest case of like cosmic nepotism, right? Do y'all know what nepotism is? Like when you hire someone you're just related to, okay? They don't, they're not even qualified, you just bring them into the organization because they're a child or they're a cousin or a nephew or something like that, Okay? This is cosmic level nepotism where God's like, listen, it's not your resume that brings you into the family and gives you the gift. It's my resume. It's what I've done that allows you to enter into this. And it's the number one foundational principle that has to be at the heart of everything we do if we seek to serve and do good works well, right? And by well, I mean sustainable, Right? I mean continuously engaging. I think asking questions and instead of assuming we always have the answers, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. To do it well, it's got to start with the gospel. Okay? So let's, let's keep going. We'll look at the, kind of the next thing that it has to be. 
Verse, uh, verse 10. Now, um, <coughs> before I get into verse 10, well, actually, let me read verse 10, and then, and then we'll, we'll circle back to this. But, okay, verse 10 says this. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Okay, so just real face value, and we're going to break it down. There are good works that the church should be doing, okay? Like, we, we should be engaged in good works. Like, should. Uh, if you have a, excuse me, an NASB, it says would, which I like even a little bit more, right? That we would be engaged in these things. Because of the reality of the gospel, we would be engaged in good works. Now, here's, here's what I want to illustrate. I want you guys to kind of just, if you can go kind of on this imagery moment with me, right? So if this over here is all the stuff you've been saved out of, okay? So, and, and that's different for different people, right? Like, like my past, it was a lot of hidden sin type stuff, stuff that people didn't really know, like anger and, and, and lust and pornography and, and honestly just kind of like stepping on people's heads for status reasons and power reasons and popularity reasons and all these different insecurities that were and a denial of continuously of God because I wanted to control my own life. So that was mine. Some of you, when you say, what do I get saved out of? You're like, man, I got like drug addiction. I've got depression. I've got uh, insert kind of these heavier, weightier things within the way we understand our culture. But I want you to think, whatever these were, I'm not even assuming, listen, if you're here and you're not a Christian, just kind of say, okay, well, what is this right now? What is some of that brokenness that exists in my life now, right? Okay, so whatever you've been saved out of, here's my model for Christianity today, is we've been saved out of it, and we step here, say the cross is here, right? So we've died and then been raised, and then we sit here, and we say, we've reached the destination. I'm a Christian, right? And we've truncated Christianity down to this, okay? To just, I've been saved out of this, I'm now new, hooray. We buckle down until we get to heaven. The Christianity of the Bible, the Christianity of verse 10 says, no, 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 you've been saved out of all this. Here's the cross. You travel through the blood of Jesus. You're raised to new life, and the destination is over there. And it's the perfection of Jesus. It is the image of Christ. And the call is this. It's continuously walking unto what the Bible says will be glorification in heaven, perfection with him. But there is this whole span of what we call sanctification or development or growth or whatever word you want to call it that verse 10 is talking about. It's saying, listen, we're not supposed to just stop here. We're supposed to continually pursue looking like Jesus. And guess what? If you pursue looking like Christ, you begin to act like Christ. And if you act like Christ, you do good works. So we're moved. And we need to kind of pull Christianity out from its little, like, that's what it is. Because the reality is you are saved out of and you are saved into, right? You are redeemed out of and redeemed into something. It's not just this save, it's this movement, it's this go, it's this continual process until the day we die. So let's break down these last lines. I'll try and move quick. We are his workmanship. Now, this is a cool word. I think, like, you read it, and it's just like, all right, cool, workmanship, awesome. Now, the word that's, that's being uh, used there is this word poema. Now, um, which I'm sure, sh- you know, like, all you guys knew that. And I, let me be honest, I didn't know it either. I had to study. This is what we do. Uh, we prep sermons. But poema is this Greek word, and the power behind that word is significant. 
Because what Poyama is talking about is this brilliant, beautiful view of this brand new creation that is being made and developed by a maker in a very crafty way as for a specific purpose, a poema. It's where we get the word poem, okay? And that's what it was used for in books of ancient antiquity as well, for poem, poema, right? And so, and so listen, here, here's the reality. When you look at, at this verse, uh, it's easy to kind of think of, okay, well, I am the poema of God. Now, that is true, right? So I'm not trying to, to pull away from you are fearfully and wonderfully made, and God has crafted you and equipped, it, equipped, it, equipped you for his good pleasure. That's all true. But the amazing part of this verse is notice that it's plural, and it's intentionally plural. We are his workmanship. Now, here's what this means. It doesn't mean grant that you're the poema, okay? Uh, Bayani, not the poema. What's up, man? It's my dude right there. Uh, no, that's good. Okay? You're not the poema by yourself. Haley, not the poema. Carly, right? You get what I'm saying? No, we are the poema. We are his workmanship. Right? And I, listen, I'm doing this because this is the size of the people that are here today. But when we talk poema, we are his workmanship. It's the church globally. God is writing something significantly beautiful to present to the world. And it's all of us that are supposed to do this together to present a beautiful truth to the world. That they too would know that they have been offered a gift they did not earn. This is significant for us to understand because the, the, the second thing, right? So the first thing, got to be founded and grounded in the gospel, okay, if we're to do this good work. The second one is you need community. You need the church. And hear me when I say this. this does, I'm not saying you need redemption church, right? This isn't a, hey, hooray us, be at all of our events type of rally cry. This is, you need the church, capital C, you need the people of God so that together we become the poema of our Father. Again, this word poem, now I don't know how many poets or, uh, or people that really enjoy a good poem in here. Um, I like to read poetry from time to time because uh, I'm classical and because <laughs> uh, I was trying to date my wife a few years ago. And so... Um, and so uh, Robert Frost, maybe you heard of his name before. So, uh, and, and listen, this shows you how I'm not very cool, is that I literally just, my favorite poem is his most popular poem. So I'm not like, you know, B-sides, cool music guy, or that with, with poetry. But um, this, this poem called The Road Not Taken, and it's been this, this fabulously celebrated poem. It's often studied in poetry classes, and it's just eloquent and beautiful, and it's been wrestled with, and what's he meaning, and it really gets down to depths of your soul when you really start to read it. And so I want to read it to you, and then I have a point that I probably promise isn't just me wanting to be cultured and cool. So, two roads diverged in a yellow wood, and sorry, I could not travel both. And be one traveler long I stood and looked down one as far as I could to where it bent in the undergrowth. Then took the other as just as fair and having perhaps the better claim, because it was grassy and wanted wear, though as for that, the passing there had warned them really about the same. And both that morning equally lay, and leaves no step had trodden black. Oh, I kept the first for another day. Yet knowing how way leads on to way, I doubted if I should ever come back. I shall be telling this with a sigh. Somewhere, ages and ages hence, two roads diverged in a wood. And I, I took the one less traveled by, 
that has made all the difference. Now, it's a beautiful poem, and, and even if you just like hate poetry, uh, just el- the el- way it's eloquently presented, it paints this, like, at least even the first time I read it, I'm like, man, like my eyes are already begin to kind of envision these two paths, right? And it's just this beautiful moment. And now, now, let me just do this. Okay, two roads diverge in a yellow wood. Have a good day, right? What does that do? Or let's let's say if I just walked up and I said, "Hey, I'm going to read a poem to you today." Two, <laughs> and that's it, right? Yeah, yeah, sure. Actually, like no one in our culture today would be like, "Oh man, that was deep." Like, okay, <laughs> okay, wow, depth, man. Like, I got to think now. You know, um, that stuff drives me crazy. Um, my point is this. A poem like that is beautiful and worth study. It's worth bringing before like hundreds of students every year because it's all put together. Craftily, right? Craftily organized by an expert, Robert Frost, probably greatest American poet in my opinion, right? And so craftily put together by this poet to present something beautiful so that the world would see and the world would imagine and the world would know. And so what God's doing in writing a poema that is not just your life, Thomas, right? It's not just your life, Jess. It's, you know, I'm going to bring together all of these different people, right, from all of these different backgrounds, from all these different histories, from all these different pains and struggles and triumphs and hurts, et cetera, et cetera, from all these different neighborhoods and colors. I'm going to bring them all together. Why? Because together they will form the most beautiful poem to present to the world the goodness and glory of the gift of God. We are the poema of God. So here are the two beautiful realities, right? So if we want to live this out well, got to get the gospel, okay? Like, like study it, know it, remember it, celebrate it, be around it, right? And then we got, we got to get that we're, we're in this together. And, and, it, and again, it goes outside this room. This is why, one of the reasons why we pray for other churches every week. We really do believe it. Like, those are our brothers and sisters down the street all over our city right now, worshiping and praising the same Jesus and praying the same prayers that our city would know and love the Savior we know and love. So those are the two that leads us to this last part, that we are created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. So, so having these two foundational realities true for us as believers, we now can say, let's get after it, right? Like, let's go work. Let's get involved. Let's be in people's lives, okay? Because this story, okay, God created it beforehand, right? In other words, he's had this ongoing mission, okay? This plan of redemption, and he draws people into it. It's, it's what it is. It's a screenwriter, right? Coming up with the best screenplay you can think of. And then he has to find the producer and find the actors to actually make it happen, okay? So, so what God does, he writes this perfect screenplay, this perfect story over the world. It is the story that starts before even Genesis, right? But that's when we know it. And we'll go all the way into uh, Revelation and into eternity. The story that he has written over the world and he chooses and employs actors in his grand narrative and calls people into himself to be part of that story. And so we do good works as a transformed new people. We go to the world. We care for people. Listen, I know that it's not always... um, it's not always easy to do, right? Like sometimes we're just uh, 
hey, I know, everything, I believe everything you're saying. I believe the gospel. Uh, I, I believe that I need family and community. I believe those two foundational principles. But I still don't want to, right? Like, I still would rather not give up four hours of my Saturday, right? Which, again, like, that's, that's just, I'm, and that's my heart, too. I, I would rather not lend this person or give this person that amount of money, right? Um, I, I do believe these, but, man, I'm just, I'm just struggling and I'm wrestling with that. And so um, I want to leave us with just a handful of reasons um, that that might be, and then we can hopefully combat that. I think the first reason is, is that we forget the gospel, okay? So we already get that. That has to be foundation plus one. I think the second one is we get burnt out because we try and go solo. Uh, we just think, okay, I'm going to change the world. I'm going to get after it. It's my responsibility. No, no, no. It is the poema. It's us together. You need community. We, we serve. We, we, we invest. And again, that's why Carly, what she's done for us here at the, in our community is she felt this like calling in her heart. Uh, and then she said, well, hey, Let's bring the community of God into it. And now we have hundreds of people over a course of a year serving all of these people around our city, right? So it's, it's the poema. So it's those, those two are the first ones. Um, I think the third one is there's just a reality to our culture says, do not experience any type of hardship, right? So it goes back to the do you stuff. Like if there's hardship in your life, something must be wrong, right? And you need to find your way out of it. If there's difficulty, then that's probably something wiggle your way out of. When sometimes it's just the reality of life, sometimes life will be hard, sometimes life will be difficult, we have to remain faithful in the midst of it, okay? Uh, the next one is that um, I think uh, that oftentimes when we hear the term good works, we think of something grand, right? Something grandiose and, and overtly special. We need to launch a ministry, right? Uh, and I'm not saying, like, you did great. But I'm saying, like, uh, like, don't hear me and say good works. All right, well, like, hey, what am I going to craft and what grant am I going to get? Like, now listen, if you have that idea, the Lord's placed on that, fantastic. But the call here is not to these like overtly amazing things that are outside of your day-to-day life. It's saying, no, 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 I am now going to take those things and make them within the, con- within the context of my life. In other words, since you were born, you have been doing good works, okay? What's changed as a Christian is what God has told you and defined for you what good is, okay? You've always tried to do good works based on your concept of good, okay? Because that just makes sense. We do what we think is good, right? And so what God has done is he's crafted and shaped and molded what that good looks like. And sometimes in the vision of God, the good looks like less good to you requires sacrifice and sometimes hardship, and I think that's difficult for us to navigate, and I want you to know that's just part of life. And then there's this last part that I think is heavily important. Um, when Martin Luther King, he was preaching a sermon uh, on the Good Samaritan, okay, and uh, on, on this, if you're not familiar with the parable of the Good Samaritan, Jesus kind of shares this thing, and uh, Essentially what it is, you have a priest and a Levite who are kind of the spiritual elite. They'd be like your, you know, your pastors and missionaries of the way we herald people in the church today. Uh, and they're walking down a road, and there's a man on the side of the road that needs help, right? He's hurt, he's beaten, and he needs help. And the priest and the Levite both walk past. The religious people, the people that are supposed to serve and to help and care, they walk right past. And Jesus continues to tell the parable and says, but then there was a Samaritan man who was an outsider, right? He was a minority. He's one that they didn't like, kind of an ostracized member of the Jewish community. And they said, but the Samaritan stopped and began to help the man, right? And so King is preaching on this this text. It's a beautiful text, a beautiful parable. And there's a couple lines in it that I find so significantly profound, 
And he said, here's the reason why the priest and the Levite walked by and the Samaritan did not. You see, the priest and the Levite, they looked upon that man on the side of the road and they said, man, how will helping this man affect me? And and I think we often do that, right? Like, okay, how would me serving in this area affect me? How's it going to affect my life? How would me being generous to to my neighbor, uh, how's that going to affect our bottom line, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? He said, so that's what, that's what they were thinking. How is this going to affect me? He said, but the Samaritan man, he walks by, he sees the man, and instead of saying, how will this affect me? He says, how will me not helping affect him? And then he gets down, and he picks this man up, and he brings him to town, stays with him, invests time. You think that Samaritan didn't have other stuff to do that day? You think he didn't have a life? He, maybe, he didn't have a family? No, no, he had commitments. It's like any other guy at that time. But he said, how will me leaving this person here affect their life? And there is the beauty of the gospel that frees us to care more about the other than ourself. Why? Because we've been justified. We've been saved. We've been raised. We've been graced. And our eternal destination is set. And so, man, we can lay it down. That's the beauty of the gospel. And I leave you this last point. All this is only possible because that is, to a T, the life that Jesus Christ, our Savior, lived. Imagine the conversation that happened 2,030 years ago or whatever, right? Right before Jesus enters into bodily form, right, inside of the womb of another human being, okay? He's sitting around with the Father and the Spirit, and they're always kind of talking, Right? What if he began to ask the question from that first lens? And well, how is me going to go down there going to affect me? And their answer would have been, well, you're going to give up all your power. You're going to give up all your wealth. You're going to give up the throne. And you're going to go down. You're going to be inserted into a woman who people are going to think committed adultery. So you're going to be born into scandal. There's going to be an emperor that at that time is going to try and kill you as soon as you come out. You're going to be raised in a family where even your brothers aren't really going to love you that much. They're going to betray you down the road, okay? You're going to be born into a situation, right, of poverty, of no home. In fact, at one point in your life, you're going to have to flee to another country like a refugee because the emperor wants to kill you, and then you'll come back. The king of the world, right? You've got to lay it all down. You've got to go through that, Jesus. And then as you get older, guess what? You're going to keep doing these things, and it's going to upset people. Even though you're there to heal and to care for, they're going to beat you. And they're going to mock you. And in multiple cities, you won't have a place to lay your head. And they're going to try and kill you. And eventually, guess what? They're going to succeed. Because you're going to be betrayed by one of your best friends. One of the people you had confidence in. And he's going to call you. He's going to bring you. You'll be betrayed. You'll be beaten. You'll have thorns pressed inside your head. And you'll be crucified. And you'll be killed. And all the people that said that they loved you and followed you won't even be there on Calvary for your crucifixion. Now, now he could have, right, if that, if that was the question, how, how is this going to affect me? That's your answer. And he's still Jesus, he's still loving, so he probably still would have said yes because he did know all those realities. But my guess is, is no, his motivation was not, man, how is this going to affect me? It's how will me not going affect what we've created? How will me staying here affect everything that groans in pain and anguish in a broken and dying world? And I think he said, wow, if I don't go, they'll be lost forever. 
Creation will be lost forever. And we know the answer to his conversation, and we know the answer to his prayer, because 2,000 years ago, he showed up. And last weekend, we celebrate, we celebrate, and we celebrate, we all gathered, because it didn't stop at his death. He rose from the grave and gave us new life, and so the cycle moves forward, pushes into the church, the poem of God, that we could now live in good works. I don't know the good works that God has called us all to. I know some that we're corporately called to, right? Like this Saturday thing. I think that's something we're supposed to do as a community. But even in the midst of that, all of us, as we take part in redeeming the city, caring for the city, loving the people of the city, man, I don't know what it means for you to love your neighbors and your coworkers and your classmates and how to engage. and what you got to know that. And you have to engage with it. And you have to ask the questions, am I doing it? Because it's all tied up in this beautiful, amazing thing called Christianity. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you because even as we preach and talk about this today, like I, just know, I know full well, God, I will probably fail at this sometime in the next three hours. God, that... Um, that, God, sometimes I'm fickle. And so I confess that reality, Lord, and just thank you for your grace. That no one in here, we, we need not sit in condemnation because we have Christ. And so I pray, Christians, all of us would be convicted by the Spirit, God, to run. And to run hard. And to serve. And to care. And to bless. And to redeem. And to be about the family business. God, I pray for, for any who are here who don't know you and you're not Lord and Savior. Lord, I pray, God, that you would draw and save from and save into and you would um, and show yourself to be who you are, this beautiful, perfect Savior that came into our world and laid it down that we would be able to experience new life, not just here but forevermore. And so, Lord, I just entreat you now Holy Spirit, we cannot change our own hearts. I know nothing of anything I say will change anyone outside the moving power of you, God. And so I pray across the room where there's reluctance, Lord, that you would bring reassurance. God, where there's doubt, that you would bring faith. Where there's fear, that you would bring hope. God, I pray for those who are here that feel distant, God, they would feel close. Because you came and you did not leave. You are still here, Spirit. And so change us and mold us and shape us into the beautiful poem you wish to present to the city of Flagstaff or wherever we call home for your glory, for our joy, and for the sake of the redemption of our town. Jesus, you are perfect. We love you. Amen.